Мы шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. I'm all by myself today. As you know, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who generously give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you like this podcast, please help us out and support it by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog, or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. So this is a rebroadcast episode, mostly because, well, I learned last week that Anne Gerrels died of lung cancer. She was an astute Russian correspondent for NPR, who also did stints in Bosnia, China, Chechnya, Iraq, and Afghanistan. The New York Times obituary of Anne Gerrels, and I'll put a link on the post for this podcast, is peppered with words like fearless and relentless. And her reporting on Russia is really great um, because it placed special emphasis on regular people and how they lived. And you can really hear this sensitivity in my interview with Anne for the SRB podcast way back in the summer of 2016 when I was just a novice podcaster. Um, I got the chance to interview her when her book Putin Country came out. I did get to meet Anne in person when she came to the University of Pittsburgh to give a talk in the fall of 2017. Her husband had just died from leukemia and she herself was just diagnosed with cancer and had begun cancer treatment. And even though it was clear then that the treatment was taking a physical toll on her, nevertheless, she was sharp, insightful, and engaging. I didn't know Anne that well, but the first meeting and the conversations I had with her left me with the impression that she was a generous, smart, fearless, and reflective reporter. Everything I think a correspondent working in Russia needs to understand that place. And even as her illness worsened, she wanted to go to Ukraine and cover the war. She wasn't able to make it, but she didn't sit still. She started a relief organization called Assist Ukraine. Um, if you want to check it out and donate, you can go to assistukraine.org. That's A-S-S-I-S-T hyphen Ukraine.org. I'll also put a link to this organization in the post for this podcast. I hadn't corresponded with Anne for the last few years, and strangely, kind of funny actually, the last I heard from her was a few months ago when she butt-called me, not once, but twice on FaceTime. Now I knew that she wasn't calling me to FaceTime me or anything, and I didn't end up answering, but it was still nice to see her name pop up on my phone, even though it was, you know, a proverbial butt-call. Well, at any rate, rest easy Anne, and thanks for all your work. Here's my interview with Anne Gerrels from 2016 about her book, Putin Country. I remastered and re-edited and cleaned it up. Uh, in those days, my podcasting equipment was pretty substandard, so um, bear with some of the quality, but I think it came out pretty well. Anne Gerrels was a former foreign correspondent for National Public Radio and the author of Naked in Baghdad, which chronicled the events surrounding the American invasion of Iraq in 2003. She's the author of Putin Country, A Journey into the Real Russia. Here's Anne Gerrels. Hello, 
All right. So the subtitle of your book, uh, Putin's Country, is A Journey into the Real Russia. And you state in the book's opening pages the well-known adage that we hear a lot, and that is Moscow is not Russia. What do you mean by this? And what is the real Russia you're trying to capture in your book? Well, you say we. We who know Russia know that Moscow isn't Russia, and Russians certainly know it. But I don't think most ordinary Americans, even those who are interested, under appreciate how different Moscow is from the rest of Russia. And that is true today, but it was particularly true in 92 when I was covering, when I was assigned to Moscow, uh, or assigned to Russia, but living in Moscow. And I wanted to find sort of middle America, middle Russia. And where, and I was traveling all the time, but I wanted one place where I could get to know people and watch events happen and would have a sense of continuum, a sense of their changing and developing attitudes. And it could have been anywhere in the provinces. And it was hard to choose. So sort of late one night, I threw a pencil at the map and declaring, fate will decide. And lo and behold, it was Chelyabinsk. And it was a wonderful choice, as it turned out. I mean, rich in its history, rich and, and very typical of the present in the provinces. What do you mean by that, typical of the present? Well, it's not Moscow. Uh, it represents sort of Putin country, 80 plus percent support, if not thrilled. But it went through in the 90s, the trauma big time, like most other places other than Moscow, where which was flush with money. And most people managed to get around a lot of the trauma because there were jobs. It wasn't factories that which were being plundered where workers weren't being paid or if they were being paid, they were being paid in, would you believe, crystal vases, which they then had to go on the highways and sell. Uh, and that was Chelyabinsk. I mean, I, I would go to hospitals, orphanages, uh, you know, the mines, which were still then working. Uh, and the conditions were appalling. People didn't know, you know, how they were going to live the next day. And while it was true in Moscow, where inflation was extreme and everybody had become brilliant currency manipulators and speculators, I mean, everyone in Chelyabinsk, if they got some rubles, raced to the bank. Even the most, you know, people out in the countryside knew the value of the dollar. Uh, it was... There were no X-ray machines. There were no uh, no X-ray plates, rather, for the machines that there were. Uh, medicines were in desperate short supply. They were relying on foreign aid. Uh, I don't think people understood just how, I mean, Americans understood just how desperate it was in those days. And then we stopped covering it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean by you stop, stop covering it? What, what is it? I mean, then... People have become much more, uh, I think, the reporters, A, the, re the contingent of reporters is much reduced. It is no longer the sexy story of the day. It's no longer, you know, on the front page, even though it should be. Uh, it, yeah, a lot of major newspapers, it's lucky that they have one correspondent now in Moscow. Oh, lucky. I mean, and, and I mean, you know, th most don't have anyone anymore. The networks have no one. Uh it's, you know, it's for a major power, 
even though we thought that it was, you know, uh, we, I use the word we in the, the sort of Western political sense, thought it was sort of not important any longer. Uh, but it is, as we now see. Um, well, it was sort of dramatic and exciting and it was going to be democracy and glasnost and perestroika, two words people in America, some many who don't even speak a word of Russian understood. But then when it sort of, you know, for a while it kind of calmed down, Putin came in, the economy was getting better, there weren't any major crises, the second Chechen war was over, you know, and it just sort of went off the charts. But behind the scenes, the trauma continued and changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to talk about this this idea of trauma and, and what what you saw and, and how you experienced it through the people you met and, and what you mean by it and, and its importance for understanding not only the 1990s, but also perhaps today, because the memory and the experience of the 1990s remains an incredibly contested topic. I mean, I, I argue with people all the time about what this period meant for Russians uh, and, and mostly because how people understand that period might give us a window into what the Putin system is and and why the Putin system. I don't think I, it's a might, Sean. Well, no, I, I'm just saying I'm just saying this is this kind of a setup. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I wouldn't disagree at all. But but and and you in your book, you describe the collapse of the Soviet system as an earthquake, and the 1990s as traumatic. And you used that you used that word already. How did life in Chelyabinsk reflect that traumatic experience, and, and what does it mean? mean in, in the way you understand it? Well, there were conflicted emotions completely. For instance, I mean, the communists won the 76 elections. Uh, 86, 96. Uh, excuse me, 96 elections. Um, and they were stolen by Yeltsin. He installed his own governor. And for a while, you had the absurd situation of two governors. Uh, as it turned out, um, the... the uh, they they reinstalled the communist who won because people, social services had disappeared. People didn't know how they could feed their families. Healthcare was, you couldn't get medicines uh, on the, on the uh, you know, national system and nobody had money to go to pharmacies and buy them. It was really, really scary. Uh, people weren't being paid, as I said earlier, uh, those who were being paid, whether they were doctors or uh, forensic specialists or you name it, were being paid $10 a month, uh, went with inflation in triple digits, if not, you know, whatever. Uh, it was, and they looked at Moscow and they looked at their elections being stolen and they went, hey, wait a minute, this is democracy? So it began, it be, all began to be much more complicated. And to start with, some people, not every, I mean, there were people who didn't want to see the old system go away. There were people who had great hopes. And there were, you know, then those who, to this day, are glad that it all happened. Uh, but the, the cumulative effect was that you would had this sort of, wow, we're going to be like America. This, they didn't, they thought that it was going to be wonderful. They thought that they were overnight, they were going to, you know, 
it was going to be a different kind of world. And then many of them began to travel to the West and they saw that it wasn't quite so rosy in the West as they had thought. Uh, and so it was almost like a spurned lover. All of, you know, they, their, their love was not um, justified, nor was it in fact returned. Uh, as, as time went on, many of the Russians I know, even those who have benefited enormously by the new system, I mean, who are now very well off, uh, you know, sort of went, hey, wait just a minute, NATO expansion? I mean, even though, you know, there's huge debate, was there a promise on NATO expansion or not? But at the very least, there was the promise that we would not take advantage of Russia's weakness. Russians believe by a considerable majority that the West took advantage of Russia, moved NATO up to their borders, and you know, then went on, we're going even further to Ukraine. And that, they didn't understand. That was, I mean, that was a Cold War construct. And you're locking us out. And the Westerners, on the other hand, said, oh, but we've given you, you know, more than observer status, whatever. And they went, hey, wait a minute, what about Yugoslavia? We had nothing to do. We, our, our views on the bombing, you know, and the uh, intervention in Yugoslavia, you didn't, you didn't care a damn about what we thought. And that was the real beginning of the turn, I think. I see. I see. And so I, I, th this raises a question. So somebody might say to you, okay, yeah, but that's also the line that you see being put forward by the Kremlin and its propaganda machine. Um, and and this, this goes to the question, a, a larger question. Um, your book is about life in, in Chelyabinsk. And in, in mostly in 2013, 2014, I think you're mostly writing about. And, and this makes me wonder, and this goes back to the the thing about, well, this is kind of, this is what Kremlin propaganda wants the population to believe. Um, the, the title of your book is Putin's Country. And in what ways uh, did you, in, in what ways and what you saw in Chelyabinsk, a reflection of the country Putin built or the country that built Putin? Or perhaps these two things can't be so easily disentangled. They can't be disentangled, unquestionably. You know, Putin has been a brilliant media manipulator. He has taken over TV, and most Russians still get their news by TV. And, but he was dealing with a wounded populace, and he played to it using everything possible, uh, nationalism, the church, you name it. But they were receptive to it. And it's extraordinary how wide a group of people were receptive to it, including many people in the upper middle class, uh, even more. Uh, on the other hand, of course, if you didn't support him and you were doing, beginning to do well economically, you paid a price. So it's, it's a double-edged sword, but, and the opposition in turn ate itself for lunch. Uh, to start with. I mean, they fought amongst themselves. They couldn't figure out a, a narrative that, that grabbed the, the people. Yes, election fraud in 2011 and 2012. I mean, that got people in Moscow and even in Chelyabinsk angry. But it wasn't enough. And there, he, he has successfully 
played on 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 that on that sense of our views aren't being taken in into account. Russia is a great country. We need to sort of we need to be listened to. I don't think Russians fully understand what that means. I mean, it's much the same as Trump. You know, we'll make America great again. Uh, and and Americans aren't nearly as wounded as Russians are. And and yet it, it, it's it's not a dissimilar phenomenon. I mean, well, it, it goes to this this issue that you've brought up, I think, and that is expectations and your national pride in relation to those expectations. Uh, so you've already spoken about the expectation amongst Russians in the 1990s that America would, you know, not only provide a model, but would assist in that model and not take advantage of Russia's weak position. And then there's the national pride in the sense of a spurned lover, in, in, in your terms, um, and not essentially capitulating to that and, and bringing yourself... And there was also... Absolutely. And there was also one other issue that I felt and, and watched, which was, you know, when the Soviet Union broke apart, all the other constituent republics could sort of blame Moscow for everything and say that, you know, they had been the victims and and they, you know, would dig up all of their national, you know, lore, treasures, whatever, and recast their history as the way they wanted it. And Moscow felt like it was being blamed for everything or Russians felt they were being blamed for everything. And since much of it did generate from Moscow, I mean, how, okay, what was good in their history? Who were their heroes? Uh, you know, rewriting the history books. And you have a situation today where Stalin is being reinstated as a national hero. Uh, and, and it is amazing how broadly that is shared by people people. It's, I mean, I don't want to say everybody. I mean, frankly, my friends, the liberal Russians, uh, you know, those, the very few who go out and march. I mean, although I now have friends, you know, who, who, who are changing their minds and Crimea is a very good example. Uh, that really blew the liberal opposition apart in many ways, because many, many of them supported, uh, going into Crimea. And they felt that the West had overstepped the mark, that NATO was really encroaching on, you know, their access to the Black Sea, that Crimea was Russian, should be Russian, and it had always been a contested area. And I think it was another place where we, we, I say, I mean, the West um, behaved with, you know, uh, you know, with little nuance, little understanding of 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 the dynamic. Mm -hmm. Now, a, a lot of what you're talking about, and a lot of it, this is the impression I got from reading your book, um, concerns a search by Russians for an identity, for a post-Soviet identity. Because as you said, the question does arise. Well, we just, that our country went through this 70-year experience it was um, degraded. It was rejected. Um, so what? What's left? Corrupted. It was corrupted. <laughs> right. Yes. What's left? Who are our heroes? What? What pride do we have in this? The fact that we and our, you know, grandparents and their parents lived through this system. What is there to salvage? Um, 
there's also the fact that with the collapse of the Soviet Union, that identity of Soviet is gone. So who, who am I now? Like, what does it mean to be Russian? What does it mean to be this post-Soviet person? Um, and, and many of the characters that you meet in Chelyabinsk, it seems to be a search for this identity. People, whether it's picking themselves up from former mistakes or crime and trying to make a good life for themselves, uh, this very interesting um, phenomenon of religion and people gravitating to new age or exercise regimes or, uh, you know, uh, Protestant Protestantism or some sort of religious sect. Uh, talk about this search for identity in some of the people that you encountered in your reporting. Well, it just raises huge contradictions as they as they make the search. I mean, there were, you know, I had, you know, one one close acquaintance who, you know, couldn't seem more Western. I mean, her mother had been enormously successful as a businesswoman in the in the early uh, days of economic liberalization. She sent her to a boarding school, a very elite boarding school in Switzerland. But she came back and she is as much a nationalist as anyone I've met. Yes, she wears Western clothes, elegant Western clothes. Uh, she has traveled the world. But, and she's thrilled that her son has access to all sorts of things that she never had access to. But she also, you know, um, she believes that Russia has a mission, that Russians created things that are, are ignored. And, and it doesn't all make sense. I mean, she will say, well, you know, the sports across the world, it's because of us. Um, and in some to some degree, you say gymnastics, yeah, uh, but it it goes well beyond that, and she will brook no debate. She has become uh, devoted to the Orthodox Church, uh, not a, and increasingly, while there had been a um, a huge amount of openness and and open mindedness about. Protestantism, or as you call it, or whatever, um, that's shrinking. Uh, I mean, when I first went to Chelyabinsk in 92, 93, the Seventh-day Adventists just w one happened to be there when I was in town. I mean, they had people packed, packed in a former communist theater uh, for, I mean, days, weeks on end, on hard seats for hours. And you know, not everybody came out saying, oh, yes, this is for me. But they were looking. They were beginning to look. And the church at that point was so busy uh, garnering, well, trying to figure out what role it was going to play uh, suddenly in an open society uh, and busy dealing with tax-free cigarettes and alcohol and, and, and burnishing its coffers that it, it sort of missed the boat to start with. Uh, although then it became more active in the communities and 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 people were sort of it became you know part of the uh, identity you know explosion uh, and there's no question that I mean now uh, it's much harder uh, for for those groups to to function and and what about the people you you know the 
on the other hand, you talk about these uh, people you met in Chelyabinsk, and, and there, there are a lot of contradictions. And I think that the one with the West is a perfect example where, on the one hand, there's a heavy consumption of, you know, quote unquote, Western culture, Western consumer products, Western style. But at the other hand, there is a growing, um, I think it's safe to say, anti-Western feeling, if not that, a suspicion of the West. How does that work and play in the attempts to create a, a, a Russian identity? What role does the West play? Well, initially, you know, everybody wanted to be like us. Uh, one of the things, I mean, for instance, I, when the economy began to tank as the oil prices went down, and uh, I thought maybe that was going to be too much for Putin and that people would begin to change their minds. But that has not been the case. Why? Well, all of, he has at least raised the hopes by, um, by sanctioning food imports. I mean, that, those are his sanctions, obviously, and not ours. Uh, I mean, when he sanctioned, uh, banned a huge range of food imports, you know, people had become very used to all of a sudden having tasty cheeses and a range of goods that no, they can no longer get. That didn't, I mean, people, you know, friends of mine, they moan and groan, um, but many others, friends of mine, sort of say, this is good for us. I mean, they go along with Medvedev's, uh, Pres uh, Prime Minister Medvedev's, uh, uh, the idea that there's going to be, we're going to be economically self-sufficient. This is what we need to do to finally create industry at home, finally sort of have the reforms, not that so far you've seen them. And I don't know at what point people are going to go, uh, hmm. But, uh, but there, it, it did create, I, I was surprised at how many people said, this is actually good for us. We need to, we don't need, we must not be so dependent on imports. We need to create um, consumer industries, technological industries, you know, agriculture, uh, so that we are not dependent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in a way, I guess, in, in thinking about this, um, in a way, all of this isn't that surprising, one should say, because if there is this you know what? Never mind. I don't, I don't want to go there. Uh, no, I, I don't. I, I don't have my thoughts. So I'll, I'll just strike that out. Um, so where does Putin fit in, in how in the people you encountered? How do they regard him? What does he symbolize to them? What does he represent? Well, it depends who you ask, of course. But uh, well, even those. Yeah, of course. But, you know, he can have many representations. Uh, you know, for um, I mean, there is a, an opposition in Chelyabinsk. It's silent for the most part. Uh, doesn't know who to look to. Uh, is baffled by the opposition who, you know, one minute coalesces and the next minute has fights. And then all of a sudden you have somebody who they thought was on the opposition called, uh, you know, Kudrin, um, the economist who's all of it, you know, sort of now making nice with Putin, although critical. Uh, they, they don't know... You know, and they're terrified of more change. I mean, if not Putin, then who is the question? Really, the biggest one. 
So and in terms of the opposition that they're, they're, of course, they're dissatisfied and they're politically active and trying to do something to change the system in some way. But at the same time, there is an apprehension because, well, then what, what happened next? Is that what you mean? Yes. And I mean, if and but but really more the apprehension is is with the, the populace at large. Um, but but there is a, a certain I mean, a certain lethargy in the opposition because they don't know who to support. Uh, you know, a head will come up. And part of it is that Putin has brilliantly uh, he didn't have to do that much to divide and conquer. They did it a lot themselves. Uh, but he has also he has managed to any time anybody with any profile gets to be too important, you know, off with their head. They are uh, tax police, whatever, uh, trumped up charges, you know, guaranteed. Or even less, as we've seen recently, um, you know, setting the new kind of what I what I consider new parameters of participation in society. You know, people being arrested and sent to jail for posting certain things online. You know, completely changing the calculus. Exactly, but and, well, exactly that poor um, young man who you know said he didn't believe in God, and the next thing you know, he's in jail. I mean, this is outrageous. And but you don't, and it and it doesn't happen all that often, but it just has to happen enough to make everybody well aware of what the stakes are. And he's brilliantly done this. I mean. It, it, and and so people are going back to their kitchens. Uh, that's where, as they did in the Soviet times. I mean, a friend of mine had said to me in 93 in Chelyabinsk, thank God I never have to go back to the, you know, we'll never go back to the kitchen. I will never go back. Well, just any discussions is now back in the kitchen. And when I go there, um, they are called in by the KGB or the successor to the KGB. Um, warned about me. I mean, it's rather sweet. They say, you know, I mean, I think they now think that I'm sort of an aging pensioner. Uh, but they sort of say, you know, you know, she's a spy. She's a very nice woman, but you have to understand she's a spy. Uh, who else would come to Chelyabinsk? Is there, I mean, in some ways it's all very primitive thinking because I'm totally open about what I'm doing and, you know, meeting with everybody on, on, on all fronts, but I think one of the, the one of the most dispiriting conversations I had, or el perhaps elucidating, um, was with a man who uh, said he was actually going to run. I mean, he had been a, an official. He had been in the Komsomol, then in the party. He had been a party official, and uh, and then uh, remained in government, trying to do what he could and. Uh, and then went out and made money. And he's made enough money that he wants to go back. But he, he says he'll run against United Russia, Putin's party. But he still supports Putin. And he supports pretty much everything Putin is doing. And he believes in Putin's vertical power, even with all the limitations it creates. But he wants to improve the economy. He understands what has to be done. He understands the corruption. But He's not going to go against the system. He's going to somehow work with it. Uh, he thinks Stalin is a great guy, even though his family suffered under Stalin. Uh, you know, you sit there and you just nod. And I mean, it is, 
and you can't square the circle. Well, I can't, I guess in a way, how can you? Because after all, you know, human beings are complex people. There are emotions, there's logic, there's all sorts of contradictions and, and people's identities never really flow clean together. There, there's all sorts of positions one takes that undermine the last position they took. So I think perhaps this is some of the things you're, you experienced, right? Completely. And, you know, you ask, and I'm not sure I have the answer to it. I mean, was it the opposition's fault? Um, or, or were they sort of asleep at the, at the wheel as Putin manipulated everything in his favor to, you know, control the media? And I mean, there still is, um, you know, uh, ironically, a pretty lively uh, debate uh, that goes on on the, on the Internet. But as I said earlier, as soon as somebody becomes too important, that's too much. You know, they're gaining, gaining too much attention. Uh, so he keeps the lid on by allowing, you know, a, a, a certain amount of freedom. But, uh, and, and what is interesting to me is the utter apathy of kids, young people. And I, they're not interested in politics. Uh, they they want to make money. They want to live well. They want to live better than their parents. Uh, now, and that's a bit of a trick at the moment because the economy is in such dire straits. So I, I thought that that might be uh, a, a red line. And I would ask Russians in Chelyabinsk again and again, where is the red line? And they would say the economy. The economy has not proven to be the red line so far. Uh, the internet, cracking down on the internet. That so far that you can get enough movies, you have freedom to watch whatever you want, listen to whatever you want, download, you know, pirated, this, that, and the other. Um, and that seems to be, for that generation, enough. You do find people that you've met that have found a way to survive and actually do quite well. You've already mentioned a few of them already. Um However, there's there's one thing that repeatedly came up in these stories, nonetheless, despite the success they had. Um, and, and this came up particularly for those people who managed to start their own business, and that's the issue of corruption. Um, talk a bit about how corruption functioned in Chelyabinsk and how people navigated uh, the, 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 I guess, even in the business sphere, how to deal with corruption. Well, you deal with it. You pay. Um, or you keep your head down and, and I mean, if you're in a, in a very lucrative business like the, like the funeral business, uh, um, I spoke to a man who had made a fortune in the 90s uh, and who was a, he had been a forensic scientist, a, a forensic official, and then when, when he was getting literally $10 a month and his wife as a doctor was getting $10 a month, he realized he had to do something and so he was a s smart guy and he opened the first f private funeral business because the state was no longer burying people. It was humiliating. You had to, you went around and stole fences to cobble together a coffin. Uh, and when he, you know, they, he was asked to pay up by the governor or his henchman. Uh, and when he didn't, his deputy was shot down and murdered, and and pressure continued on him. They they went 
they went, he was perhaps too clever a fellow or I don't know, but he, you know, but they did go after him ultimately with tax police. And so he got out of the business. Uh, and uh, now he is trying in his own way, uh, amazingly, uh, he's undeterred, perhaps because he's drinks a great deal, <laughs> um, but he's also very smart. Uh, he is trying to be an independent forensics expert in a country where the courts are far from independent. And he's amazingly having some success. Now, not on mega-loaded political cases, uh, but judges are turning to him where they think that his expertise will be of help, uh, that it's not a case that is going to raise you know, incredible red flags. When he has been asked to be in cases where, you know, uh, there was a case of military corruption where the military was, uh, there was a new law that um, all veterans could have headstones uh, who had died in wars. And so it was, the the, the military was merrily, um, allegedly building headstones for all, for, for uh, these benighted veterans who had been forgotten. Uh, well, it turned out all they were doing were 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 just uh, processing them online and and photocopying the 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 monument. They weren't built. They weren't putting in. And he found this out. And and actually, an honest prosecutor came to him for help. Well, that was way too loaded. Uh, you know, there were too many too many people in the military. And when there were cases of uh, kids who had been who had allegedly committed suicide while in the military, but it in fact died because of brutal hazing. Uh, those cases were too loaded. But he has, yeah, it continues, yeah. And, um, but he has, it, it and, and so, you know, and when I asked him, well, why don't you leave? You've, um, he said, I'm too old, I'm too Russian, you know, and my friends are. You know, I mean, we, this is our home as, as for all of its problems. And, and, and there are many like that. And some, you know, still trying to do something, although many of the, the people I met who were trying to do things in civil society, who were working with prisoners, who were, uh, who were getting foreign grants uh, in many cases, they've now been all declared foreign agents and, and, they face uh, big fines that they'll never be able to pay. Um, that, this goes to the other issue in that you also profile many people one might consider the outcasts or the marginals of Russian society. And by this, I mean homosexuals, and drug addicts, people who are infected with HIV, also human rights activists. And I would imagine other people in the opposition and some of the people you just mentioned who are working in NGOs. Um, but nonetheless, these, these people seem to find or at least try to find some sort of community. How do people in these more marginal communities find their way in a provincial city like Chelyabinsk? I mean, in Moscow or St. Petersburg, there's enough, you know, there are cosmopolitan, metropolitan, international cities. But in the provinces, how does this work? How do these people find each other and maintain their communities? Well, it's hard. And they've been... Uh, I would say that 
I mean, one of the things you saw that while many of them received Western donations, increasingly Russians were supporting them. But as it became clear that they were dealing with issues that were not popular with the Putin regime, uh, those donors disappeared because it was clear that um, those donors were going to be investigated. The tax police were going to be at their doors. Uh, and so they are not getting financial support at home. Uh, and they're, you know, as I said, you know, said earlier the, the the idea of being back in the kitchen. Uh, they're they they meet um, you know in their homes and moan and groan, uh, try and do what little they can, uh, and remarkably continue to do quite a lot. But it they've got to be careful, and you know they're 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 loaded people to know. Uh, their friends uh, realize that you know might not. Maybe some people who might have been their sort of semi-friends uh, now realize it's, it's, it's not smart to be with them. It's not smart to be associated with them. Uh, and you certainly have seen that with the donors. I have one friend who was a journalist there who was a superb journalist, and she just got sick of her stories being spiked by the paper as it became increasingly Putinized. Uh, and so she, she opened a, a blog and... She had supporters to start with, people who were funding her. She has no one now. And not because she wasn't really good, but because they were scared. And what about things like gay life? Well, you know, that's a curious thing. There is, in fact, a very active gay life. There is um, a well-known gay bar uh, that is open from sort of midnight. Only Russians would go at midnight. I just can't believe Anyway, I'm, I'm a little old to be going to bars at midnight, but midnight all through the night. And uh, it is, they have the campus, most hysterical, talented group of performers there. It is, it is, uh, and they're very careful though. They have, they have bouncers at the door. It is probably the safest place to be in Chelyabinsk. No drugs. There are cameras in the bathrooms, you know, they are, but they, and they function. They haven't been busted. They continue. Uh, and so on the one hand, and, and that is a place where people can meet each other, uh, where there is a community, uh, both, both, um, and, but, you know, you don't tell people at your place of work you're gay, um, there are, uh, God forbid, you should. There used to be gay, uh, sort of quiet, but gay parades where nobody would say anything, but they would let loose colored balloons um, once a year. Uh, that no longer happens. It, they, uh, the law, which uh, you know, basically is against so-called propaganda against for minors, against you know, to protect minors. Uh, it, it just means that. You can't bring up homosexuality anywhere because in schools you can't talk about it because that would be considered propaganda. Uh, teachers say if they had ever been discussions, there are no longer discussions on this. So it's a and but there's also one interesting part of this. Um, the, the people are split, I have to say, but many of the uh, of the the gay community that I've, many people in the gay community I've spoken to basically say it would be better if the U.S. just shut up about Russia and that if that American activists shouldn't 
think that you know they can turn Russia into America overnight, and that it would be better if they just that things have gotten worse for them because of you know the the effort to sort of go from you know I mean after all homosexuality was illegal until after the Soviet Union broke up, and punishable by prison sentences, and I mean they've it's. There, there's been a huge move forward. Not what the gay community wants. I mean, they would, they, they would like to move, but many of them say, you know, listen, this is Russia, and it's going to take time, and it doesn't help if you, you know, um, push too hard. You, you're, you're drawing attention to us, and, and we, we just have to do this slowly because it is extraordinary. It's sort of what it was like 40 years ago here. I mean, even, you know, when I would ask my parents and I would come back from school and I had, I, uh, from college and I had some gay friends, although then it was barely accepted. And my parents would say, homosexual? You know a homosexual? I mean, and I would say, you don't? What about, you know, what about Uncle Joe? You know, and they went, oh, well, he's just eccentric. And, and that's sort of the same, you know, Russians, I would ask even some of my more liberal friends, and on that subject, they would go, I don't know anyone who's gay, you know, ooh. So, I mean, it's a, they, it's a, it's going to be a long time coming. Yeah, and the, and the Kremlin, the Kremlin views the, the international outcry, where I should say the, specifically the Western outcry about homosexuality in Russia as part of the overall information war. Um, so they see they see this as as not as genuine concern, but actually part of the larger conspiracy against them. And, but you know, it's it's not exactly been an easy road here. And and you know, once again, going you know, as you pointed out, I mean, the media, you know, it's it's uh, there's only uh, you know, if you're a TV watcher, which still most Russians are uh, getting their news that way, um, you know, you are told. <laughs> that you know this, these people are beyond the pale, and you've got with the Russian Orthodox Church and you know joining the chorus. And, and finally, I want to return and, and end uh, by thinking more about this concept that Moscow is not Russia, because even though your reporting is in Chelyabinsk, um, Moscow is still looming in the background, and Moscow has been looming in the background in our conversation here today. I mean. Putin has been there. The politics of the state has been there. Um, the tele, what the television beams in the people's homes is directed by Moscow is, is there. What is the relationship between Moscow and Chelyabinsk? And this relationship between the center and periphery, like what do you, by being in the periphery, being in the provinces, what do you see about Russia and how does it reflect on, on Moscow um, than if you just stood in the center? It's a great question, and it's, and once again, it's really hard to answer, and it's even harder at the moment, actually. Curiously, I mean, there is this power vertical where, you know, well, for a while, Putin was naming all the governors, and then the governors in turn, loyal to Putin and dependent on Putin, uh, since they weren't dependent on the voters, uh, would then choose their people, and it went down through the parliament. It was, and so, but I, I'm hearing from Chilyabins, I haven't been back in a year and I'm hoping, I'm hoping I'll be allowed to go back in the fall, um, that 
I mean, there are big fights going on now between the F, the the federal security services and the governor who was appointed by Putin. I mean, there are. I mean, so it's not. Yes, there is this power vertical, but there is there is also a completely sort of Byzantine hidden fight going on for on the local level for money, for property. Uh, it's it's not really. I wish it. I could say it was for something more important than that, but it seems to be essentially, you know, for for. Uh, 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 not for good governance, <laughs> uh, and and uh, but but so, I mean that and so these are Putin's institutions, if you will, but they're they're at each other's throats. So that it's a and it's it's and even though you know you might sort of goff at the you know scoff at the elections that are coming up, uh, there are local elections in the fall. Uh, I mean, that has made that has made that um, those fights even more vicious. That was Anne Gerrels. Anne Gerrels is a former foreign correspondent for National Public Radio and the author of Naked in Baghdad, which chronicled the events surrounding the American invasion of Iraq in 2003. She was the author of Putin Country, A Journey into the Real Russia. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to share it on social media, tell your friends and family to listen, anyone really who is, you know, has an interest in Russia and the wider region. Please drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or srbpodcast.org. Let us know what you think. And as always, if you like this podcast and want to help keep it going, we'd love to have your support. The SRB podcast is a nonprofit educational endeavor, and it relies on the support of individuals and educational institutions to keep it completely free to listeners without paid advertising. So please help us keep it that way. Go to srbpodcast.org, find that Patreon link, and join the table of ranks. Until next week, bye. Brother, my cup is empty and I haven't got a penny But if I no more whiskey, I have to go home Oh brother, my cup is empty and I haven't got a penny But if I no more whiskey, I have to go home I am the captain of my paint Just the fist, the bridle, and the thrashing cane The stirrup, the harness, and the whip in me The pickled eye, and the shrink and brave Brother, Explain the nature of my pity Let me tell you once again I am the captain of my pain My cup is empty and I haven't got a penny But if I no more whiskey, I have to go home I can't blame it all on her To blame her I would be a For many a night I lay awake I wish that I could watch her die See her accusing See flies warm a hateful eye To watch her groan in the dirt See her clicking tongue crack dry 